0: Hello and welcome once again to the Film Score Junkie podcast with me, Charlie Nelson. Coming to you from Alexanderplatz in Berlin, I have with me British conductor Ben Palmer, who tonight will be conducting Charlie Chaplin's score for his silent masterpiece, The Kid. It'll be performed by the Babylon Orchestra at the wonderful old 1929 Babylon Cinema on Rosa Luxemburgstrasse. So Ben, uh, to start with, I'd like to ask you this question of everyone who performs live music for film. How did you start out in film music?
1: Um, it was actually because my orchestra in London, Covent Garden Sinfonia, we had played, I think, every year since 2008 at the South Bank Centre, mostly at the Purcell Room. And then in 2013, we did a Berlioz concert at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And afterwards, I wrote to the South Bank Centre and I said, look, we'd love to do some more shows at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And a little bit later, they got in touch, I think it was about August or September of that year, and said, look, we've had a, we've had a cancellation for a, a sort of prime Saturday in December. Um, would you like to do some kind of Christmas family concert? And I said, yeah, great, um, let's do The Snowman. And then I sort of thought, oh, h- how, how, how do I do this? Um, so I contacted uh, Mark Fitzgerald, who's a a friend of mine, um, obviously fantastic silent film conductor, great expert on Shostakovich and all that kind of thing, Um, and asked him how he did it, basically. So I contacted Mark, and he very kindly lent me one of his scores um, and a DVD, so I could see how he essentially marked up the score, what his process was for learning a silent film. And I, I sort of started with that and gradually just developed my own system for my own system for learning the snowman. And that went really well, I really enjoyed it. And um, so we did that again the next year and then uh, also with my orchestra we did Chaplin the Gold Rush, uh, which really was a challenge, you know, 90 minutes of basically solid Mickey Mousing. Um, But it's it's a sort of, it's an amazing, it's an amazing challenge, but I found it completely, completely addictive. Um, It's very different from conducting say, a big Mahler symphony or something, but I find that satisfaction of, you know, getting the the punch together with the loud chord in the orchestra or, or whatever it is, um, it's a really big buzz for me. And so I started doing more and more of them. So we did Casablanca, uh, we did Psycho, we did E.T. And then gradually, I guess in around sort of 2016, 17, I started being um, asked by um, other orchestras um, to... Conduct films for them, um, and yeah, and then you know a couple of years later, I'm sort of doing thir- 35, 40, 40 films a year basically, um, and it's it's mostly been big, uh, big blockbusters, sort of John Williams films uh, and things like Casino Royale and Skyfall, but I've also um, done lots of lots of silent films like like Metropolis and Neil Brand's mm-hmm. The Lodger and Oliver Twist and things. Um, and now that I'm working with the, the Babylon Orchestra Berlin more regularly doing lots more silence again, which is wonderful. You
0: have conducted for live accompaniment to old silence, um, as well as a number of more recent films. Uh, do you have a preference? Would you rather go for the late 20th century tentpole films, which are sound films, or would you go for earlier films?
1: Quite honestly, I, it's, it's a little bit like when people say to me, uh, ha, ha, you know, ha, do you prefer conducting live to picture or do you prefer conducting classical concerts? I, I wouldn't be without either. I love doing you know, things like Back to the Future or Jurassic Park or E.T. The scores are incredible, they're exciting. The films are incredible and exciting as well. Um, but of course, I have rather more technology to help me. I have a monitor which will have you know, the Newman system, the punchers and streamers, um, or sometimes for the James Bond films or things like Beauty and the Beast, the 2017 live-action version I'll have a click track as well. Um, so there's lots of technology to help you, I mean of course you still have to do your homework and be really prepared, but silent films there's a kind of danger there because it's just you in the film, you take all your cues just from the film and that's something that I love and I yeah I really treasure that kind of challenge of doing that. and. What's amazing, I mean, I've done in the last couple of months, I've done nine shows of Metropolis with the Babylon Orchestra here, and we always say to ourselves afterwards how astonishing it is that the film is the same every night, and yet our experience of it is always slightly different. You know, different things happen. I decide to kind of phrase a scene in a different way or approach a sync point in a different way, and that has a very different musical and emotional impact. So I love conducting silence, and I love conducting the big block, Blockbusters as well, um, and I suppose in an ideal world, I'd, I'd be doing lots of both, really.
0: I imagine when it comes to conducting conducting silent films, the how you do it a little bit differently each time. I imagine it's like a kind of mental workout for you and the orchestra.
1: What I've what I've realised is that I need to have essentially th- when I'm conducting a film, I need to have, I suppose, three things in mind. So, um, there's in theory where the film and the music should be, how they sh- how they should be synchronised together. That's the, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is where I actually am, which might be ever so slightly ahead or ever so slightly behind. And then the third thing is what I need to do to make those first two things agree with each other. And in a um, in a film where I've got punches and streamers or a click, it's much easier really just to stay with the picture completely all the time. And actually it's desirable really to stay with the picture all the time because when I'm doing one of those films, I'm trying to recreate as um, exactly as possible what was on the original soundtrack. So I allow myself fewer liberties. With a silent film, I always feel there's it's it's sort of legitimate to play around with it a little bit more. And so yeah, it, it is it is a workout. I mean, it's. It requires a great deal of trust in both directions, me to the orchestra and the orchestra to me. They need to trust that if I do something slightly unpredictable that I'm not just being um, a little bit crap at conducting, but I really actually want them to move in this particular place. I need them to put the brakes on or to move forward. Um, And that is extremely, I think, extremely exciting for us. And it's exciting in a way that perhaps doesn't happen with the big films where you're trying to reproduce the same thing Every every time, perhaps.
0: Mm -hmm. Back to sound films. I, a couple of years ago now, saw a a wonderful performance you did uh, of Brassed Off in Birmingham with the Grimethorpe Colliery Band. Um, And this must have been huge fun. But could this have been different in the sense that you were dealing with an ensemble that wasn't a conventional orchestra and that may have had amateur players playing in it?
1: Well, this is a re- this is a really funny thing. So whenever whenever I start rehearsing any film, you go to the orchestra for the first time, you play through the first cue, and then usually you go back and you say, right, you know, you do your sort of normal musical rehearsal things, and then you say, now this bar we need to stretch a little bit because there's a certain thing that happens on screen, um, and you know, you just have to. Edges and corners, a little bit of polishing just to make sure that what, what we're playing fits exactly with the film. When I went and did my first rehearsal with Grimethorpe, uh, that was in, um, that was before the Birmingham show that you saw. The first one we did was in Leeds, actually with the Opera, uh, the Orchestra of Opera North playing as well. And so I went to Grimethorpe to their band room for the first rehearsal. And. Um, that they were they were ready they was they were sitting there five minutes before the scheduled rehearsal time ready to start and they just said you know we, we can start and we paid through the first the first queue, the first march and um we just and and this was and i had my laptop there and i was syncing it to the film and we got to the end of the queue and i said um right let's uh, let's move on then and we basically went through most of the film, hardly rehearsing anything at all. The only thing we really had to work on a lot um, was um, the the Rodrigo concerto, Dorin's juice, and the and the William Tell, because those are the ones, and actually also the Florentina March. Those are the ones where the sync is extremely, extremely important because you can literally see the players' valves moving on the screen, and that has to be. Ideally, perfectly synchronized with oh, with yeah. with the live music, um, and I mean, actually, Brastoff is fairly terrifying for that because it's suddenly those moments just come out of nowhere. Suddenly, Pete um you know, is is whistling along, and that's and that's um, uh, that that's got to line up, uh, or you know, singing along when they're on the bike, and that's got to line up perfectly with the, with the fall dance. But Grimethorpe, the work ethic was astonishing. The playing was absolutely astonishing. Um, you're right in the sense that they are technically amateurs. It's probably one of the most professional groups I've ever worked with my entire life. And I mean, this was born out not only in my experience, but when we did that first Opera North show. Um, you know, the, the the orchestra of Opera North, lovely, lovely, lovely guys. They've, you know, lo- lots of them have been in the orchestra for, for a while and, you know, they've sort of seen everything and done everything. and. Um, loads of them came up to me afterwards and said, "This is the best day I've ever had sitting behind the bases in Grimethorpe Colliery Band for a day." They'd, and they, they just said they'd never seen such kind of concentration and commitment, um, and you know the playing is just at an astonishing, astonishing level. And of all the films I've ever done, that's the one where I've had to do the least work to get the ensemble or the orchestra, or whatever it is. To actually be synchronized with the film, because it, it's a, actually with with Grindthorpe, it's a little it's a little bit like, I suppose how I imagine it would be with the with the Vienna Philharmonic that, you know, playing Johann Strauss or something. That it's it's a real living tradition of how they play those pieces. And when the soundtrack for, for Brastoff was recorded, they just recorded those pieces as they as they were in their repertoire at the time, and to a greater or lesser extent, that is more or less how they still play those pieces now. So, you know, things of phrasing, things of rubato, all this kind of stuff is, is just how they still play that music. And, of course, that meant that it still fitted with the film, which was kind of really, actually really astonishing. Um, and we, I think we had probably two or three members playing in the band uh, in the Leeds and, and, and Birmingham and, um, and Sage Gateshead shows who were on the original soundtrack and in the film. Um, some of them playing different instruments, I think one of, one of them had been a cornet player and had migrated to tenor horn or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it's quite a moving thing to play that, that film, which means so much to them, um, actually with some original members of the, of the cast, as it were.
0: Oh yes, and um, I guess when... I mean, to have, to have the score um, played by the original band... I mean, I mean, God knows how it can be done. Where if the if the band somehow goes, if it goes defunct, I mean, I guess it'll be very
1: difficult. I think I really hope Grimey will will survive. Yeah, um, I hope so. they. They did a they did a really good crowdfunder during COVID and things, and they're doing lots of fantastic education work. Um, and I, I hope it's enough of a national institution that it will that it will survive um, for as, for as long as there are people to go and hear them.
0: Now I've got here a a list of various other films that are in your repertoire. You, of course, have done Neil's score, Neil Brown's score to Oliver Twist, as well as The Lodger.
1: Great, great fan of both of those.
0: And um, you've and sound film-wise. Just before, yes, it was just before I saw you do the premiere of Oliver Twist in Sheffield. I saw you conducting this is tw- this is, this is, this was 2018.
1: Was it Jaws or Raiders? One of it was Jaws, Jaws at the Bridgewater Hall with the okay. Czech National Symphony yeah. Orchestra.
0: What do you, do you ha- did you have any challenges when it came to conducting Jaws because I imagine I imagine you did I mean I, I I imagine you have challenges with all these films. As I think I remember hearing you say in another interview that the
1: shark-cage fugue yeah. was the most challenging part of the Jaws score. Jaws is, Jaws is a tricky one for a number of slightly curious reasons. One of the slightly weird things about it um, is that in the first act, so the first half of the film, because um, whenever we do a, one of these big films in concert, they always put an interval in, um, yeah. inter- intermission. Um, and so in the first half of the film, there's really not very much music. So you know, there's a sort of a little little splash at the beginning, and then you get 30 seconds here, and then you might have eight minutes off or eight and a half minutes off. Um, and so actually, for the orchestra, that can be a little bit difficult to sort of keep their concentration. Um, you know, so they're just sort of sitting on stage, and then suddenly you've got to just absolutely drop in. In the second half, as you rightly say, the shark, the shark cage funeral, this kind of thing. Whenever, whenever the the shark theme comes back. It's always in a slightly different tempo. So we have, I mean, it's and it's a thing that you get often in film music is relatively few themes, um, which you hear in many different different ways. Um, but in Jaws, especially. Uh, You know, sometimes bim bum 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 bum, sometimes it's 108, sometimes it's, I don't know, 112, sometimes it's 126, sometimes it's 132. If you don't get those absolutely, absolutely right, you run into all sorts of problems about 10-15 seconds later. Um, So really the challenge for that is to absolutely get the speeds, the the tempo at the beginning of each cue nailed, and then the whole thing uh, usually works pretty well. Um, but it is—it is that is really challenging for the orchestra because you need to communicate extremely clearly exactly the speed that you want and they need to really trust you and you need to just, yeah, really, really insist on it. So that's actually the thing that takes the most rehearsal time. Um, I mean, actually, funnily enough, that show in Manchester of uh, Jaws that we did, I think that was the day where, I don't know if there was some terrible accident on the motorway and the orchestra was extremely, extremely late, so we basically only had time for a seating call rehearsal. So I think we had something like 20 minutes instead of three hours. Um, which basically was a sound check and run running two cues. So they did astonishingly well. I'm hope, hoping the surprise look on your face means I hope you didn't realise that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I remember hearing
0: about an accident yeah, or something, yeah, but it's, um, it's gone now. Yeah,
1: um, but um, yeah, that was definitely um, coffee and adrenaline that got us through that one. Um, <laughs> also, I recently
0: I was when I was talking to Neil uh, a couple of weeks ago in Port Danone, I. Um, we were talking about various things to film music, and he he mentioned that one of his favourite film scores is the is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and I said I mentioned the Night Bus here, yes. where
1: the whole orchestra just goes berserk. Absolutely berserk. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's funny actually. I've just um, last week I was doing a concert at the Royal College of Music, and uh, we did Dukas Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, a suite from Game of Thrones, which I arranged, and then I put together a sort of composite suite from The Philosopher's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, and The Prisoner of Azkaban, including the Night Bus. <laughs> um, and in the in the concert arrangement that's published by Hal Leonard, I think the the tempo's taken down to. Minimum, you know, half note, 128. But on the original score, because I checked, because I've done askaban and Concert, I did the German premiere a couple of years ago, is somewhere between 138 and 140. So when I said this to the orchestra, you could just see some of <laughs> the wind players, the the whites, have their eyes, and they're going, oh, okay. Um, but we spent a lot of time rehearsing it slowly, as as I did with the Württemberg Philharmonic when we when we did the live shows in Germany. Um, you just need to take it apart and just make it really, really rock solid and then speed it up again. But it is absolutely, does, absolutely wild. It's extremely, extremely difficult.
0: Does the orchestra in that queue, does the orchestra ever, uh, the, the like the bass player and yeah. the percussionist, do they have like ad lib bits in there?
1: No, it's all scored. It's oh. all scored. Um, it's just astonishingly, astonishingly done. I mean, there are little bits of it that remind me of. Uh, I mean, even like music like Thomas Ades, some of the colours, you know, this incredibly inventive use of percussion and sort of squealing piccolos and these kind of trumpets things. It's, it's extremely, extremely um, delicately scored, even though actually the noise is fairly cacophonous and, and kind of raucous. Um, it's tremendous, tremendous fun to do, but it's extraordinarily hard because there were, you know, these big hard cutoffs where you finish and then Harry slams against the front of yeah. the bus. And you know it's just got to be in the right similar, place. There's yeah. a
0: similar thing that John Williams does. I mean, I when I heard this watching the film, I mm. couldn't tell which bits were sound effects and which bits were, were
1: orchestra. That's a very that's a very common thing, and I think yeah. lo, lots of the uh, actually some of the orchestra said, you know, there's the uh, wah, 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 wah. and I think lots of them had thought that that was that something was that was on the soundtrack hall. exactly, and it's actually just a very densely yeah. scored. Jazz chord for for the winds. The
0: bit the bit I was thinking about though was the bit at the end of at the climax of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they open the Ark of the Covenant out mm-hmm. and you get all the ghosts. The guy's head blows up, the head yeah. shrinks, the head yeah. melts, and um, and I actually uh, went onto YouTube and found the score for mm. that bit, and you got the horns and the trombones doing this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And he said, and I thought, I thought. Was that? I thought. I thought it was sound effects that, and it's all it's all scored. There's only like one ad lib, bit in it for like the the piccolo when the lightning bolts shoot out and goes like that.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's yet another example of essentially why John Williams is one of the greatest composers. Full stop. Not mm. just living composers, not just film composers, but just one of the greatest composers. I mean, anybody who can write, um, you know, *Buckbeak's Flight* and also *The Night Bus* and also *Catch Me If You Can* and *Schindler's List* and *Jurassic Park* and anything else you can think of. Um, you know, astonishingly, astonishingly varied, but all with this impeccable craft. You know, there's no no note is wasted, um, and it all carries tremendous emotional impact on its own. But then, in combination with the film. Uh, it's, you know, it it sort of elevates the whole thing yet further. Um, So now back to The Kid. Um, About tonight,
0: you're going to be doing The Kid uh, this evening at the Babylon. Um, Why do the music for The Kid? I mean... After all, it was, it was written 50 years after the movie came out. The, the film right. came out in 1921. 21,
1: and the soundtrack is 71, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and Chaplin is not really regarded as one of... as being in, like, the top rank of film composers.
1: I don't know about that. I mean, I, some of the films that I really love best are the Chaplin films with the original Chaplin scores, I say original, added later Chaplin scores, So, for instance, Gold Rush, you know, where he wrote the score for, I think, the sound version of the film, and then uh, Timothy Brock brilliantly adapted it to fit the 1925 original silent version, Uh, Modern Times, which is coming up at the Babylon in December, we hope, Um, and also The Kid. There's something extremely touching about the music, I imagine that the musical assistants uh, did a great deal of the heavy lifting, um, but there's no denying that the music itself fits the films perfectly and just carries a tremendous, tremendous emotional weight. But also brings out all the humor. You know this kind of tragic comedy thing, the the, the, the two the two sides of this of this coin. You know how you can be crying and laughing in the same breath. And the music just expresses that perfectly. The orchestra has said how much they absolutely just uh, are in love with playing the score. It's amazing fun to conduct, um, and and it's it's just really a joy to do it. And it's wonderful to hear the audience um, essentially just crying with laughter the whole way through. Um,
0: this is probably I think one of the reasons why the score is really good. Um, I think a similar thing is applied to scores for musicals. Is because though no one, no one, though no one is singing in this score, a lot of, although Chaplin himself is credited with composing the music, there were more people who worked with him. There were two guys, Eric James and Eric Rogers, and of course on the other scores there was the great David Raxin, yeah. Eddie Powell. On the Gold Rush there was Max Tare and yeah. many many others. Alfred Newman on it was, um, Times, yeah. And it was probably why there were. Why there were such great scores? Because they had more than one person.
1: Well, I mean, it's just working. Uh, on it, them. it is. It is l- not dissimilar to, let's say, um, Hans Zimmer coming up with a brilliantly memorable theme that somehow sums up, uh, you know, the whole essence of a film in a few notes, and then, you know. Uh, hand, handing it handing it on to his team, who will expand it and turn it into a, a score for a full length movie. Um, composers in the film world have have really, I think, well, always always. You know, there's a great tradition of that happening. Orchestrators, arrangers, um, you know, people people being drafted or dra- drafted into to help, uh, you know, with some extra music that's needed. I I, I, I don't think Charlie Chaplin. Uh, could have sat down and written, written the, whole, the whole thing uh, and, and scored it all himself. Um, but there's nonetheless a, a very distinctive flavour to all of his scores, you know, in the same way that you can hear some Rachmaninoff or some Prokofiev or even, let's say, some John Williams and know within a few notes that it's probably music by that composer. Hmm. You can tell pretty instantly the Chaplin scores are by Chaplin. Um, and I don't think we should take anything away from him because he had some assistants doing it. You know, it's really a kind of back. He's doing the whole thing. He's in directing, s- he's acting in it, and also now with these soundtracks, it's, it definitely adds another, another layer to it.
0: In a similar way, you have, like, Disney films with songs by the Sherman brothers, but they also worked with... Collaborators like the great Irwin Kostal
1: absolutely, or you know, or even Frozen, which has you know the orchestral score by someone and the songs by someone else. You know, there's a great tradition yeah. of it, and I I really don't think there's anything there's anything wrong with it. Um, I mean, it's you know, there're probably very relatively few people l- looks again at John Williams, you know, who write everything, including the songs, including the source music, everything. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it's all about giving giving the film its best chance to. To, to really hit home and I, I think these um, Chaplin chaplain scores really do that I think we also can't underestimate the amazing work that Timothy Brock has done mm. uh, reconstructing them I mean it's a sort of astonishing, astonishing amount of work you know these scores run into hundreds of pages thousands of bars and he's done it so so lovingly and so you know such detailed work and you know marked in some of the sync points and things which you can then Choose to follow explicitly, or find your own way through it. Um, And yeah, uh, you know, owe a a great deal to him because without him, without Timothy Brock, there'd be there'd be no chance really of doing these these films live to picture with the Chaplin music.
0: And to round this interview off, um, what do you think makes the kid so special?
1: I think it's really there's definitely all the kind of archetypal Chaplin thumbprints you know there's obviously the sort of uh, hilarity the slapstick stuff Um, but I think perhaps more than any other Chaplin film it has this incredible emotional depth you know I mean when you know Edna's giving up the baby at the beginning and then she realizes Mm. that she's made a mistake and she regrets it and then you know when she sees the kid, when, you know, when he's sitting on the step and she's there handing out toys and, and, and we know that she's his mother but he doesn't know and she doesn't know, that's incredibly sort of tragic but the scene is, is somehow sort of quite cheerful and then you know, after the fight where she brings him to Chaplin and says you know, he needs, needs care and attention and he's recuperating and then you know, he's taken away and that moment where he's put in the truck and, and you know there's no there's no title card or anything, but you, but you can see him like this kid screaming, my daddy, my daddy, oh please, oh please. Yeah. And you know I, I can't really I can't really bear it. I have to you know check I'm in the right place and then look at the orchestra or something. It's really it's um, it's incredibly incredibly moving. And I, I suspect probably you know, as, as lots of other people have said it, I think the the, the kid probably resonated with his own experiences. Uh, you know as a, as a as a poor kid growing up in East London, hmm. and lots of the tragedy that he experienced and and, and i and I just think you know because for instance the gold rush you know what are the really earnest moments in the gold rush it 's probably you know the new year 's eve thing where he's you know he's spent all this time scraping scraping and scraping snow shoveling snow to to raise um to to earn money to cook the new year 's Eve dinner. And, you know, the really only absolutely earnest moment in that is when he's there and he can hear the New Year's Eve party going on in the hall round the corner and he's there and he's set up his meal and, and the girl's not coming. Um, but I feel like, but, and you know, in the rest of it, even though there are some sort of serious moments, it's, it's always with that kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, the comedy's only just a little step away, whereas I feel in The Kid there's definitely a real... that 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 element of tragedy underpins the whole thing and it goes much deeper than it does in, in the other Chaplin films. So I think that's, for me, why it's, why it's such a heartbreaker, really. Um, and, it, you know, again, it's a sort of slightly curious, open-ended ending. We don't quite know what happens after they go into the house at the end. We sort of assume it's a happy ending, but it's not absolutely explicit. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing.
0: Well, Ben, that wraps up this this interview, then, uh, thank you for tuning into the Film Score Junkie podcast, and do tune in again next time I, whenever I put out another podcast, whenever that, whenever that will be. Thank you very much, Ben, for thank you very much, Ben, for um, giving up your time to do this interview.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank I hope you, you enjoy hope you enjoy the show tonight.
0: Thank you very much, Ben. Break a leg.
1: Thank you.